The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello and welcome to The Exchange, the Reuters Breaking Views podcast where we discuss business, finance and economics with the people who matter in all these fields. I'm Swaha Patnaik, Global Economics Editor of the Commentary Team, and it's a pleasure to welcome our guest today, Stephanie Kelton, Professor at Stony Brook University, who served as an advisor to Bernie Sanders during his 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. You're one of the best known advocates of what is known as modern monetary theory or MMT. And a little earlier this year, you published a book on the subject called The Deficit Myth. There will be listeners who've read it, who've read the reviews of it, but for those who haven't, perhaps we could start uh, with a really quick summary from you of the central argument you're making in the book and where it diverges from the conventional approach to public finances and fiscal policy. Sure. So, I mean, I think if I have to boil it down into uh, a sort of simple sentence to characterize what the book is attempting to do, I suppose I would say that um, the effort is, the goal is, to replace an artificial constraint with a real resource constraint, with an inflation constraint. So here's what I mean. We tend to think of the federal government and of the federal government's finances in ways that are most familiar to our own. In other words, the book begins with a chapter called Don't Think of a Household. Don't think of a household. So we have been sort of trained over time just in the public discourse, listening to our politicians, listening to you know the press, confronting things in newspaper articles, on television, where people say, you know, the federal government needs to get its fiscal house in order. And when you hear that sort of framing, the use of the word house, it takes us right to our own personal finances, our household finances. And we begin to think of the federal government's finances the way we think of our own, that it's irresponsible to spend more than you make, that it is risky to borrow and take on debt, that you can get into trouble, you can be forced to miss, you can get in a situation where you're missing payments, you could even be pushed into bankruptcy. And we hear politicians talk like that, as if the federal government is just like a great big household, that it faces the same financial constraints and that running its budget in ways that um, are not closely aligned to the way that we budget our own household finances is risky and that they could end up bankrupting the nation or something along those lines. So the book attempts in, in the first instance to correct that thinking, to get us to recognize what makes the federal government different in the US, in the UK, in Australia, in Japan, in countries that I call in the book um, sovereign currency issuers, governments that have control of or issue their own sovereign currency. They don't pledge to convert the currency into gold or anything else. It's what we call a floating fiat currency. So that is um, the nature of the monetary system that we have today. So the goal is to understand it and to understand how to optimize it, to live better, to have better, uh, more efficient macroeconomic policy that puts our real resource constraints at the fore and then asks us to live up to our means, right? You often hear people say that deficits are evidence that 
governments are living beyond their means. And I'm arguing that in almost all cases, governments are living below their material means. And they do so, um, I think, primarily out of fear of budget deficits and running the government's budget um, more, let's say, aggressively to take advantage of the monetary system. Do you think there is any difference? You named a several countries that, you know, not just the United States, but do you think there is a material difference between countries that are sort of perhaps in the emerging market, developing market basket and big developed economies? And is there perhaps a difference between the US, which has the premier international reserve currency being able to operate like this, and countries which are developed countries, but may not have the same ability to make people want to hold their currency regardless, come rain, hail or shine? Yes, well, sure. Uh, there, I deal with this in, in a chapter, I think pretty thoroughly um, in, in the trade chapter, where I do talk at length about developed countries and the differences. You know, I, I say in that chapter that we should really think of a spectrum it's not a black and white issue. It isn't the countries that I listed are monetary sovereigns, and then there are those that aren't. There is sort of a gray area where it becomes a question of how um, aggressively can a country exercise its sovereignty in terms of its currency? How, how much can it do before financial markets might begin to have a have something to say about that in terms of interest rates. So in other words, can the country manage its own interest rate? That's an important question. What about exchange rates? Is a country vulnerable to wide swings in its exchange rate because it's dependent upon um, the rest of the world to get critical imports? And, and I talk about medicines, food, energy, technology. So um, there are countries that are indebted in foreign currencies. They're indebted in foreign currencies like the U.S. dollar because they need access to goods and services that they could not otherwise acquire with their own domestic currency. And so, yes, there is an advantage to a country like the U.S., a, a very big advantage in our case, in that the rest of the world is generally quite happy to produce things for export to us in exchange for our currency. They will take the U.S. dollar. But they'll also take the yen, they'll also take the euro, they'll also take the pound, they'll also take, you know, Australia doesn't have these constraints. And so what I'm arguing is that countries that have a, a high degree of monetary sovereignty can manage their budgets in ways that allow them to sustain full employment domestically. At the very minimum, they can afford to employ all of the labor that wants to work, but can't otherwise find employment domestically. Perfect. I mean, you've packed a lot of years of work and thinking into a very few minutes. Um, even so, um, it's perhaps easy for people to walk away without understanding a little bit more of what you're saying with the caricature of what modern monetary theory is about. So let me set up a couple of straw men for you, and uh, I'm sure you can knock them down and uh, explain a bit better about the constraints. First, the layperson might just walk away from an outline of this theory, thinking that governments can spend as much as they like. It's OK. It's sustainable. It doesn't matter as long as you have one of these fiat currencies. You do, ha you do say there are some you know, constraints, though, and I think you alluded to it before with inflation. Would you mind going into it in a little bit more detail of what you mean? Sure. 
So saying that a country like the U.S. that issues its own sovereign currency is not like a household and that it faces no purely financial constraints is not the same as saying that the United States can spend without limit, that there is no limit. Of course, there is a limit. There are limits. And the second chapter of the book is called Think of Inflation. So inflation is the relevant constraint for a currency issuing government. A currency issuing government like the US is not gonna end up like Greece. It's not gonna be forced into bankruptcy. It's never going to have bills coming due that it cannot afford to pay. What can happen is that Congress could commit too much spending. And so the key really is that, you know, government spending has to share space in the economy. We have to share space with other spenders. The government has to share space with other spenders. And most of the spending that takes place is done by households, right? Consumer spending is the bulk of total spending in our economy, some 70% in normal times. And then you have businesses that also spend for investment purposes. You have the rest of the world who wants to buy some goods that are produced here. So we export some to the rest of the world and the government also spends. So you've got four competitors here, you know, the private sector with households and businesses, you have the rest of the world, and you have the US government. And all of that spending combined places strains on our economy's real productive capacity. There is only so much we can produce at any point in time with the people we have, the workers we have, the factories, the machines, the raw materials, the state of technology, that is our material productive capacity. And if total spending outstrips the economy's real productive capacity, the punishment, right, the, the evidence of overspending is going to be inflationary pressures. So what I'm saying is look at what Congress has been doing over the course of the last few months, right? We have the coronavirus pandemic and all of a sudden, Congress moves very quickly, passes four major pieces of legislation, the biggest being, of course, the CARES Act, 2.2 trillion. But I suspect here in the next uh, handful of days, we're going to see another major piece of legislation. And so the question is, for me anyway, uh, is Congress attempting to do too much at the moment? Does that next bill put us at risk of, you know, reaching beyond our productive capacity? I think the answer is, I hope, clearly no. Um, there is much more that can, and I would argue, should be done to support the economy right now. But there are limits. So imagine that Congress continues to, to spin off trillion-dollar bill after bill. They can do it, right? Congress can write and pass any bill they choose, and they can pass it. a trillion, a two trillion, a three trillion, and they can keep going. Now, they won't, but they could. And if they did continue to pass major legislation and commit to spending trillions, even after the economy recovers and returns to full employment, well, of course, you're going to hit that limit and you're going to end up with an inflation problem. So that that really is the relevant constraint is inflation. We haven't seen any yet. This is obviously the pandemic is a really bizarre time to try and, you know, even measure inflation, let alone get a true reading of what it might be. There's been a demand shock, a supply shock. We're trying still to figure out which is going to be more predominant. Um, having said that, the, the, we've discussed um, the, the contribution you've made to Bernie Sanders' campaign before. The unity task force that Joe Biden's campaign will be working towards the proposals that were included in that um, 
in those recommendations included a lot of sort of fairly radical ideas for what a Biden presidency would want to do. What did you make of that package as a whole in general, given what you have advocated in the past? Did you think it was coming closer than you've seen in mainstream democratic thinking? Closer to? To your, you know, arguments of about worrying less about just sort of an artificial deficit number, which may or may not be relevant. Well, I mean, these are a set of, um, you know, in a sense, it's part aspirational because it lays out a blueprint for where we would like to see where the party says it would like to go. And remember, there are two documents. There are the task force recommendations and there were six task forces. I served on the task force on the economy. And then there was also the party platform that uh, is where the Democratic Party is kind of laying down some markers and saying these are the things that we stand for as a party and so forth. So, um, you know, he uh, Vice President Biden has, uh, you know, I think uh, very clearly and compellingly made it clear to the American people that we are in the fight of our lives and that this is not something that is going to pass. And by the time he takes, if he's elected the oath of office, that most of the damage is in the rearview mirror and we're looking at some sort of an easy road to recovery. I think he understands that that is not what we're facing. And, you know, when he invokes FDR and he says what we're facing is something on you know an order of magnitude like the challenges that were faced during the you know great depression era he's talking about the need for scaling up massively investments in public infrastructure and in healthcare and in education and i mean he's kind of wrapping his arms around a whole host of social and economic problems and um, and i think that if you take the um, task force recommendations in their totality that yeah i do believe that it is probably the most progressive economic platform agenda that we've seen since FDR. Right. I mean, let's let me also widen it out. This is not a question or pandemic and the spending that's accompanied it. It's not just a question that's affecting the US, obviously. And as percentage of GDP, a lot of countries have been spending huge amounts. Um, in the past, however, in one of the recent UK general elections, the Labour Party, the centre of the sort of left party, was um, accused by the ruling Conservatives of um, believing there was a magic money tree. And I quote here from the election campaign, during the pandemic, it feels like politicians around the world have come across a forest of magic money trees and are, you know, exploiting it happily. What is, however, it's, I mean, you'd think everybody's been converted to your way of thinking, but... The conventional wisdom and a lot of economics economists are saying there will be payback. Governments are saying this will have to come, not now, maybe in two, three years' time. They're not talking about austerity, but they are talking about higher taxes. Now, my understanding of your views is that it's not that you're opposed to higher taxes, it's just the point of them is different. Would you like, I mean, what do you make of this debate about higher taxation to pay for this? It's sort of at odds with what you're saying, and yet you're not against, per se, higher taxes. Yeah, I think you have characterized my views exactly correctly. So um, I think this debate is is very, very misguided. When I hear people say, you know, eventually you have to pay for it. Eventually we're going to have to pay for it. I say, what is there to pay for? We've paid for it. That's what all of this legislation did. It paid for all of the spending. It's been paid for. 
what governments have chosen to do, and I want to emphasize the word chosen because you're making reference to the UK. I've been mostly talking about the US here, but in both cases, we're talking about currency issuing governments. These are governments that never, if you're the issuer of the British pound or the issuer of the US dollar, you do not need to borrow your currency from anyone in order to spend. That is a choice our governments make, both here and in the UK. Governments choose to coordinate deficit spending with bond sales. They choose to sell bonds when they engage, when there is a budget deficit. And so what they're effectively doing is choosing to make some of their payments in the form of non-interest bearing currency and some of their payments in the form of interest bearing currency. That's how they've chosen to pay for it, but it is already paid for. So this question about taxes and, you know, will I need to raise taxes in the future in order to pay for all of the spending that's been undertaken to fight the pandemic and support economies, for me is just wrong-headed, right? It's been paid for. It's you chose to pay for some of it with bonds and you chose to pay for some of it and and paying it back. The, the bond itself has a maturity date, right? So at some point, the bond matures. And at that moment, it converts back to its original form, which is the British pound or the US dollar. It converts back to non-interest bearing currency. That's all that's happening. So paying it back is really just about um, shifting the dollars or the pounds from one account into another account at the central bank. That's all that's taking place. People believe somehow that, you know, it works like private debt, that it's like my um, car payment or my home loan that I have to go find the money and earn that, raise the uh, cash to pay it back. It's not like that. Um, so no, taxes aren't about financing government spending past or present. Taxes are mostly about um, removing purchasing power from somebody else's hands, from private hands. So why would we need to do that in the future? In two years, five years, 10 years, will taxes need to go up? So you might say, well, we want to address um, income and wealth inequality. Say, okay, well, you might want to do that through the tax code. And so you can make a very strong case, and I have made that case, that uh, we should be making adjustments to taxes for the purpose of rebalancing the gross inequities that we have allowed to develop over the course of a number of decades, right? Increasingly inequitable distribution of income and wealth, which is not just bad for the functioning of our economy, but also corrosive at some point to democracy because that much concentration of wealth in, a, in the hands of a tiny number of people does um, undermine the political process, right? It gives people too much power over the political process. So you can use taxes to address that. If at some point in the future, our economies recover and spending is so strong that the government chooses, let's say, to use taxes as one lever to reduce purchasing power to um, prevent inflation from accelerating, that's possible too. But I think the far more likely scenario three, five years from now is that we're still facing, um, you know, we still have a depressed economy. We still have, uh, you know, levels of unemployment that are undesirable. And I don't see the purpose of raising taxes apart from dealing with inequality uh, unless there's an economic reason to do so. It's not about a financial reason.
Right. And we keep uh, talking about inflation as a constraint. I should perhaps ask you, do you think the current mandate uh, and the interpretation of the mandates that central banks have chosen uh, of roughly 2% are of inflation being their target, is that the right level of inflation roughly? Do you, well, how, where do you stand in the debate about letting the economy run hot, having higher inflation rates um, without harming you know, underlying growth? Well, it's tough. I mean, I, I don't feel that there's a whole lot of thought that's gone into the 2% target. I think that central banks around the world have just sort of gravitated to that number. And there's not, uh, it's not clear to me what the underlying rationale is, uh, except that we, we want to avoid deflation. And so we want to keep inflation in positive territory. And maybe there's a belief that 1% would be too low because it doesn't give you enough margin for error. You might tip into deflation, maybe 2% is a safer target. Uh, I guess it depends for me what we're trying to accomplish. So if we're trying to recover the economy and then after and through the recovery to tackle the other crisis that we're facing, which I would say is climate related, that's gonna take a massive commitment of resources at the federal level and globally, right? So if we're gonna get serious about climate change and we're gonna commit to the kind of spending that will be required to do what needs to be done in the time frame that it needs to be tackled, then I think for me personally, um, would I be willing to do what we did in World War II when you're trying to win a war? You're trying to beat this climate crisis thing. You say, listen, if, if inflation goes to 4%, but we you know, save hundreds of thousands of lives, we can you know, get carbon emissions under control and so forth. Is that you know, a trade-off I would be willing to make personally? Yes. Um, but look, it's a democracy. So the people broadly have to be supportive of those efforts. And um, so it's a tough question. Do I think we should, we can allow the economy to run hot? Do I agree with people like Janet Yellen? Yes, I do. Um, I, I think that, you know, missing on the upside for a while would be not only okay, but probably a good thing. Allow some wage catch up, allow wages to increase, allow workers to uh, get a bit of uh, catch up in terms of that. So, yeah. Right. Let me ask you, you mentioned when you were talking earlier about sort of interest-bearing currency when you borrow non-interest-bearing currency um, when you order up new dollars from the Fed. I mean, the divide was perhaps a little more evident before we got into a zero negative yielding world. Um, I mean, how do you think the developments, especially in Europe, even the UK, which has its own currency. One could argue Germany does not have it control over its own issuance, if you like, of currency issuance as part of a monetary union. But where, what do you think about this difference becoming difference becoming muddied, where yields are zero, primary auction yields are sometimes negative in some countries? Yeah, it's uh, it's an incredible thing to be you know living through this uh, transition in many countries, as you say, from thinking of um, you know government securities as fixed income assets where they deliver a, a positive stream of income to the holder over time to now uh, reversing that completely tipping it upside down and saying essentially that investors are willing to sacrifice um, a stream of income in 
exchange for uh, the ability to hold a government security over time. I think in part, it's a reflection of the failures of fiscal policy that central banks, you know, I don't think you have, you know, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think you have negative yielding government securities in countries where you don't also have uh, the central bank targeting a negative overnight interest rate. So it's a reflection of the central bank's own monetary policy with the short-term interest rate. And that's what's driving longer-term yields um, to, be, to be negative, right? And so why are central banks pursuing negative interest rate policy? Well, because we've asked them to do almost everything. We have left for decades central banks in charge of, um, in the U.S. case, the dual mandate and around the world, you know, inflation. And if they can't get inflation up and they can't stoke uh, economic growth, well, they just drive the short-term interest rate lower and lower because they don't have a partner or they haven't had a partner on the fiscal side. And so I really do think that um, the negative interest rates are just essentially a reflection of the failure of fiscal policy to step up for so many years. I think one of the, I mean, one exception perhaps is... um only slightly, though, is the UK to what you're talking about. It's still in positive, short-term rates still positive, the central bank policy rate still in positive territory, but you're starting to get two-year bond yields or whatever going negative. Having said that, I mean, to your argument, it would be that they are doing QE, which is effectively a sort of, you know, distorting the markets and trying to achieve something. That's basically happening because the central bank and governments are um, working independently, but in tandem. I don't know how you do that. But anyway, so whatever is being issued by the UK Treasury is basically being absorbed by the central bank. Um, Now, there's people who are wondering whether this is actually encroaching on the independence of central banks, that they're working too closely hand in glove. I mean, do you think too much has been made of central bank independence? I mean, it's quite a recent phenomenon after all with the, you know, we think it's forever, but it hasn't been around forever. Is this overdone, the concern, or is independence necessary? Look, I think that um, a few things. We, central bank independence, I think has been uh, quite misunderstood in many ways. I think that a lot of people think that central bank independence means that the central bank um, can tell the government no, right? Can actually stand in the way where the way that I explain it is in the U.S. context, um, the Federal Reserve is the fiscal agent for the U.S. Treasury. It's the government's bank. And the Fed's job is to carry out payments that have been authorized by Congress on behalf of the U.S. Treasury. The Fed does not say no to the clearing of those payments. It's its job, right? It would be um, it would be a mess for the payment system if the Fed refused to clear payments. But the Fed does have independence when it comes to choosing its inflation target. Congress has not told the Fed what to do uh, on that. It has independence when it comes to the its interest rate policy. Congress has not told the Fed. It has historically, right? Treasury and Fed have worked together to cap interest rates and so forth. Um, But right now, um, that's essentially what Fed independence means uh, or central bank independence. Now, do I think that uh, it would be a good thing if we saw further uh, overt coordination? Because what happens really is that the coordination has been taking place all along. It's just been behind the scenes. And so people don't really have a good understanding of how hand in glove 
the central bank tends to work with the finance ministry or with the treasury. There is a high degree of coordination always. It's just that it's been sort of, you know, covert. Now it's becoming more overt and we're seeing the coordination. And, and I think that um, it's, a, it's been a good thing. I think that it's important as we continue to tackle the depressed economies and so forth, that central banks make it clear to markets and to lawmakers that they stand prepared to act um, in a, playing a supportive role for governments and to make it clear to everyone that there will be space available to governments to fund the economic agenda that is deemed necessary to support economies so that we don't fall into a second Great Depression. I mean, staying with the central banks, I mean, they're supposed to be some of the most conservative people in financial policy making normally and very sort of uh, cautious. Having said that, what you're saying and what they say have said for the past decade chimes. Uh, a lot of central bankers around the world have complained that they've been left to do all of the heavy lifting for much of 10 years where fiscal policy, particularly in Europe, hasn't you know, done its part. I mean, that's basically what you're saying. What's the sort of reception in central banking circles to your ideas? Well, I don't, it, you know, it's funny. Um, publicly and privately, the reception can be very different. Um, you know, they're publicly, you might hear someone like uh, Jay Powell say that he thinks that these ideas are dangerous because he has heard someone say that uh, MMT is about leaning on or in some sense using the central bank to, um, you know, overtly, in some overt way to make all the money that's necessary. And, and we say, no, 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 no. What, the system we have works perfectly fine. If Congress authorizes the legislation, you'll carry out the payments that have been authorized by Congress on behalf of Treasury. There's no need to come over and, and strong arm you guys. You know what your job is. You know, the, the, the bills, um, the payments are going to be made. So uh, I think that honestly, that there is some relief. I think if you saw the op-ed that um, Ben Bernanke published in the New York Times just last week, you're looking at someone who went through this, who lived this, right? And he is saying, basically, look, you, when I was Fed chair, you didn't do enough. And he's talking to Congress. He said, you didn't do enough. You hung me out to dry. You left me in a position where I had to go almost all on my own, right? I got one piece of legislation from you and the rest of it you left to me. And I did QE1, I did QE2, I did Operation Twist, I did QE3, I pushed the chips all in and I just tried to hold it all together. And he's saying now in this op-ed last week, don't do that again, right? Congress, you're going to have to play a permanent role, not as a you know one-time stimulus, but he's saying stay in the game until the game is over, until we win this thing, right? Then you can withdraw fiscal support. But he's saying, you got to be a partner in this or things are going to get really bad. Um, so I do think that central bankers are um, welcoming, receptive, and probably privately a little bit grateful. Uh, you know, you heard Mario Draghi in his uh, last week, I think, right? In, in kind of parting remarks as he left the ECB saying, uh, we're going to have to begin to get creative and think outside the box, he said, and we may need to look at things like modern monetary theory. I mean, he invoked it, you know, 
So uh, I think that they understand, as Bernanke said once, you know, monetary policy, he said, is not a panacea. He said, it's not the ideal tool. Well, if it's not the ideal tool, there's only one other tool, and that's fiscal policy. So, you know, I think, I think they understand that they need, a, they need a partner and that the fiscal and monetary authorities working together works best. Absolutely. I was going to say, I think Mario Draghi would have been envious of getting even the remotest bit of help, uh, uh, you know, on a sort of compared with Ben Bernanke, but still, I think your point's a fair one. Um, that's, that's how, you know, public policymakers may be receiving it. You come from the world of academia. And let me delve a little bit more into how your thinking's evolved. So when I look back at your early, early sort of career in studies, you were studying for your uh, BA in economics at the California State University in Sacramento. You've obviously gone on to get PhD for professorship, etc. But even in your MPhil in economics at Cambridge University, the sort of ideas you're um, expounding are not the common run-of-mill ideas in Economics 101 textbooks. Could I ask you perhaps, Stephanie, to how did your thinking evolve from those days to where you are now? What made you question some of the, the foundations of what people are taught? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I uh, I went to Cambridge thinking, I guess, somehow that some of the historical legacy of you know what had taken place at Cambridge for decades, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, that some of that tradition had lived on, and that I would get sort of exposed to that, uh, those sorts of ideas. And with few exceptions, that just wasn't the case. It was, uh, I got a very conventional training in, uh, in all areas of economics, and in macroeconomics in particular. So here I was um, studying uh, economics in a, you know, Cambridge University, very conventional course. And I come out and um, I get a fellowship from Cambridge and I go to the Levy Economics Institute and I um, encounter some people who are thinking about things in a completely different way. And they had read this little booklet, a little book called Soft Currency Economics. And it was written by a man named Warren Mosler. And Warren really wasn't an economist. I mean, he has a bachelor's degree in economics, but he came from, from the finance world. Okay, so he, uh, he wrote this little book, and basically he was arguing that um, economists and others are getting almost all of the big things wrong when it comes to the way we think about money and taxes and the role of bonds and government finance. And so he wrote it in this little book, and people were passing it around. And I read this thing, and I thought, you know, this guy is completely crazy. These are, this cannot be right. You know, surely somebody would have mentioned this at Cambridge. I mean, this is a, a pretty good school. Uh, if this was the way things worked, I would have, I would have been taught this somewhere along the lines. And, you know, the thing is that Warren's arguments were so compelling, even though they felt wrong to me, um, he came from the finance world, so he understood monetary operations, and it was clear from the book that he was someone who deeply understood the monetary system. And then he wrote everything down in using T accounts, which is balance sheet accounting. And it's very hard to hide the truth when you're articulating, when you're presenting your ideas using balance sheets, because balance sheets have to balance. So if you have a debit somewhere, you've got to have a credit somewhere and you can really find the mistake if everything doesn't sort of uh, net to zero. Do you see what I'm saying? 
So I went through this and I'm thinking, well, it's, it's got to be wrong, but where is the mistake? And so what it led me to do was to go start digging into the Treasury and the Fed and how it all works in practice and talking to people in debt management and trying to figure out where Warren's, where the hole was in his argument. And at the end of the day, I couldn't find one. So I ended up trying to write a paper that exposed the flaws in Warren's thinking. And I ended up writing, I think, my first peer-reviewed article, um, which took me somewhere I didn't think it was going to take me, which was to a place of agreement with what Warren had been arguing. How long did that journey take you to sort of resist it, write a critique, uh, and then gradually find yourself in agreement with him? Well, I wrote that, uh, I wrote a version of that paper as a working paper at Levy that year. So somewhere in that 12 month period, I, I did all the reading and, you know, I think I wrote two major papers, uh, during those, during that year. And then of course the publication process takes a little bit longer, but I remember getting a letter from James Tobin, the Nobel prize winning economist while I was a graduate student, you know, and, and, uh, on fellowship at Levy, uh, and he had read this working paper. And so he invited me up to Yale and he said, let's talk because I think we have similar interests. So I drove up to New Haven and we had lunch together. And I remember him saying how disappointed he was that I hadn't cited some piece that he had written in an encyclopedia on money where there were, you know, things that were, we would have agreed on that I had in my paper. And I thought, wow, okay, I'm just this young graduate student, but I'm disappointing this Nobel Prize winning economist. And so I thought, I have to fix that, you know. Um, but anyway, so it took, it took about a year of kind of wrestling and, and rethinking and investigating, kind of kicking the tires on Warren's mm -hmm. little book. And I mean, that a year is quite short compared uh, with the amount of time that you have been advocating MMT, your ideas and stuff. I mean, academic circles are usually very polite, generally, at least most of the time in public or private. Having said that, the, the intellectual critiques can be vicious. And while you are obviously getting re recognition in public, your ideas are getting traction in political circles, how do you find it within academia? academia? Is there more acceptance or do you still find there's quite a trenchant core of resistance to what you are saying? How hard is that as an academic and by background? Uh, it's hard, you know, you, you want ideas to be challenged. I mean, that's the, that's the nature of science, right? You want ideas to be, um, evaluated by your peers. You want to reckon with weaknesses in your arguments. And that's part of the process that scholars, uh, engage in. I think what's been too often, uh, unfortunately the case with, with much of our work is that we haven't received the benefit of that kind of scholarly engagement. Instead, too often, what we've um, unfortunately seen is, you know, people caricaturing our work rather than reading it and engaging with it and saying things like, well, these are the people who say governments can just spend to infinity and you never have to worry. Well, that's a silly way to describe a body of scholarship that puts inflation risk at its core. Uh, it's not, it's not very um, 
honest. It's, not, it's obviously not scholarly engagement. So we've put up with a lot of that, I think, over the years. And that's unfortunate. There have been some exceptions. There have been people who, uh, you know, mainstream economists who have come to sessions where MMT economists have presented at academic conferences, written letters or emails. Um, I've had some very nice uh, exchanges with people, you know, privately. Uh, who make make it a genuine attempt to understand what it is we're saying, and, um, but it's hard, and it's it's been harder, I think, than it should have been. And I'm not exactly sure. I'm not exactly sure why, except maybe that uh, you know we we don't have positions. We don't have an MMT economist at Harvard or Princeton or something like that. And maybe to some extent, there's just been less willingness to engage seriously with people who aren't already part of that kind of community um, there is some gatekeeping that goes on but do you do you think those gates will open a little quicker if you know the ideas start to circulate and be implemented a little more in policy making circles in the real world if you like yeah, I mean, I think they're already, you know, here, it's, I sometimes say to people, I feel like the MMT economists have had their feet firmly planted in the sand right, for 25 years or so, and we just haven't budged. And a couple of things I find interesting, you know, we have weighed in on every major policy move, everything from the euro before there was a euro we were writing. So we have weighed in and taken positions that were controversial, that ran counter to conventional wisdom. And I don't think, and this sounds, uh, would Donald Trump say braggadocious? This sounds, you know, <laughs> I don't believe we have gotten anything wrong on any major issue from QE to the Trump tax cuts to the Bush tax cuts to the Clinton surpluses to the euro. I mean, I could go on on all the big things. I don't think we've missed anything. I think we've gotten it right. And that is to our credit. And I think that explains actually why eventually we started, you know, people start paying more and more attention to us because we were, I think, you know, getting things right where others were continuing to predict things that didn't turn out to happen. Having, having your feet planted firmly in the ground and not having to change your narrative, you know, not having to say, oh, well, it's about now there's more scope for this or now, you know, we just stayed here. What we have felt is a slow and steady encroachment from, you know, from the other group toward our positions. They don't call it MMT, but all of a sudden, whether it's a presidential address at the American Economics Association that says, you know, debt sustainability, probably not the issue we once thought it was, whether it's, you know, people starting to talk more openly about inflation being the constraint, um, governments being issues, issuers of their currency mattering. You know, Paul Krugman for a while was uh, very uh, confused, puzzled. He said it was a puzzle why the borrowing rates in Japan, while Japan's debt ratio was orders of magnitude higher than, I think, Italy's, you know, how in the world is it? that Japan is borrowing. And he said, it's a puzzle. No, nobody really knows. Well, then after a couple of years or so, uh, he did a piece called uh, Currency Regimes Matter. Well, I've been teaching from the Krugman Oxfeld textbook um, in my international finance class for 14 years. And I always had to fill in 
those gaps in the, uh, you know, where, where things weren't said. So I think, you know, that people are, are seeing value in the uh, ideas and taking them on board, just typically not giving the ideas credit, you know. And I mean, you say your feet have been firmly planted in the sun. Having said that, I mean, academic thought, your thought keeps evolving as people are coming closer to where you are sitting or where you have sat for many years where are you looking to go to what is your next you know you're obviously still advocating mmt ideas and stuff but what is it that you're worrying about what is that next idea that you're looking at of what you know major policymakers should be tackling next you mentioned climate change but actually big sort of principles yeah, I mean, I'm, I think climate change is, is obviously a big one. And I think joblessness is going to be a major challenge, is and will be a major challenge for countries around the world. I'm, you know, fortunate in that uh, I do get to have conversations often with political leaders, with, you know, whether it's lawmakers in the House and Senate here, whether it's members of parliament in the UK, whether it's presidents of countries and, you know, around the world. I, uh, I am hearing more and more interest in the idea of a job guarantee, some form of public service employment where this is a federally funded sort of public option in the labor market, something to deal with, you know, the very real possibility that millions and millions of the jobs that have been lost so far are going to be permanently lost unless we do something to re-employ people. And I think um, that's probably, you know, the area where I'm likely to spend a good bit of my time going forward is, is on employment, the employment side. Look forward to that book. That would be fantastic. Stephanie, we could go on for a few more hours and your ideas are always worth delving into. But um, our listeners may well wish we would, given your next book sounds or next uh, paper sounds interesting. But let me wind up here. Thank you for listening out your thinking in so clear ter- in such clear terms. I'll thank all of our audience for tuning in to this episode of The Exchange, which was produced by Freddie Joyner. You can find other interesting conversations like this one on your favorite podcast platform or via our website, breakingviews.com. Thank you. 